I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we are joined again by Dr. Brian Kaufman. We dive into the world of drug trials and explore CAR T-cell therapy. Let's talk about it. I'm, uh, I'm really stoked for this conversation. Um, we are once again joined by our friend, Dr. Brian Kaufman. Um, Brian was on the show uh, earlier this year, and, uh, and we, we talked to Brian about his work, um, his work in the chronic lymphocytic leukemia community. Um, Brian is a well-known doctor and educator and clinical professor turned patient. Um, and has dedicated himself to teaching and helping the CLL community ever since his diagnosis back in 2005. And uh, after our conversation, Brian, I remember, I think it was, maybe it was within the conversation, we kind of, t- we touched on it, but I believe it was after the conversation was over, um, we were kind of hanging out for for a minute or two, chatting while the mics were off, and the the topic of CAR-T came up, and uh, and I think it came into conversation because we were thinking about it a lot due to this other project we were working on at the time. And uh, you you graciously offered your your time to come back on the show once again in the future to kind of dive into CAR-T because you know a thing or two about it, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, I hope, because uh, we don't know. We don't know a whole yeah. lot about it, but um, I know a little bit about it. Um, well, well, OK, sure. You know what? Let let's me actually, do it. Let me do it. Yeah, let's flip it. So, yeah, let me so do it. I think Brian, Thanks, Brian. So, We're just going to let you go here. And, <laughs> yeah, you can, uh, you can go, we'll Brian, Brian, Brian uh, Kaufman. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was lovely. And uh, let's move on to Taylor. So, Taylor, <laughs> tell us all about Cartier. Um, <laughs> Dr. Kaufman, uh, I, guess, I guess just to kick us off, um, uh, give, your, give yourself another introduction. Maybe we've had some new listeners. Um, but, sure. uh, you know, I gave you a little one there. But give our, our, our listeners, our new listeners, maybe some insight into uh, who you are. Sure. So I'm Dr. Brian Kaufman, and I'm a retired family doctor and clinical professor. Um, and um, I also have a master's degree in uh, adult education and love to teach. That's what I love to do. And I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer, chronic lymphocytic leukemia in 2005. Um, and I've beaten the odds on that um, through entering a number of clinical trials. And we'll talk about one specifically about CAR-T later on. But I also was impressed with the fact that it was very hard to get good information on chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Mm. And yeah, you needed, I needed to leverage my advantages as a physician and attending major hematology and cancer conferences to get that information and to get into these clinical trials. And, and I, I wanted to democratize that and allow anybody, you didn't have to have a Rolodex with everybody's name in it. You didn't have to have an MD at the end of your name to get the best possible care. And so my wife and I founded the nonprofit CLL Society. 
I'm also on a personal note, a bit of a trial junkie. And I've been on a number of clinical trials because I think you get the best care there. And I think the one the one we're going to talk about today is my CAR-T trial and CAR-T in uh, general, which is really um, cutting edge kind of there. I'm very, uh, I'm very interested to, to, to speak about this because it's CAR-T is something that has swirled around in, in my world um, several times over the past uh, six months or so. It, it actually first came up for me in a book that I was reading, um, talking about all things about cancer and some of the things that lead that like, uh, like the, the sort of um, whole universe of things that could contribute as risk factors for cancer, whether it's genetics or lifestyle choices or whatever, like the, the, the thousand things that could play into that came up in a book that was very interesting. Then we had our conversation with you. And then it was actually after that, we, we ended up, we're working on another project producing a show and and I ended up speaking with somebody who works at a um, at a facility that manufactures and develops um, uh, uh, drugs for for pharmaceutical companies. And he was very very gung ho on the future potential for CAR T therapy. Bullish, if you will. Very very bullish. Like really going. You know, this is something that in the next twenty years, like, this is just this is showing a lot of promise to to being a therapy that can take away that that can sort of maybe maybe in its in its in its in its uh, most hopeful sense replace this sort of blanket treatment that is chemotherapy that is you know it does a, it does a job but it also does a lot of harm in mm. in the in the in the in the service of doing that job as well. So yeah, this guy Taylor was speaking to had this saying. He said he kept saying car tea when you're on car tea, it's a party. And um, just, we're just curious. That was what Taylor was getting to. Is that true? Is it like a yeah. party when you're on? But everything I was saying was actually leading to that. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Well, be, before before we get into the party, which is car tea, uh, there's something that I that I would love to kind of unpack and dive into, I guess, which also I think will help give context to the conversation that we're about to have. You just said something there, Brian, um, that, that I thought was really interesting, which, which was that the, you seem to feel as though the, um, you can receive some of the best care within a trial. And, uh, and I, that I find that, I find that statement really interesting. I think, I think when most people think about like drug trials, um, I feel like there's a lot of people who would kind of assume the the that you know a, the first thought that comes to mind when thinking of a drug trial is like almost like a uh, you know a guinea pig experience where 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 perhaps because of that thought because of mm -hmm. that thing that comes up there there might be this association with like ooh drug trial sounds a bit sketchy you know like a little bit a little bit off the wall and like risky. maybe risky yeah totally. Um, so can you can you kind of elaborate on your your thoughts for, you know from the perspective of a physician but also from the perspective of a patient what what is it about drug trials that makes it uh that makes it a place where you feel like you're receiving perhaps more care or attention that you might have otherwise doing some sort of you know traditional treatment So so let me be clear to start with you know drug trials aren't for everybody and if there's a fabulous treatment for your disease, um, and we, we talk about this example, if you have a strep throat, it's not like, I have an experimental drug to try. You know, you want to take some penicillin unless you're allergic to penicillin. So if there's a great treatment, take the great treatment. Don't experiment. 
But a lot of times, especially in cancer, but in other chronic diseases, the CAR-T is actually being looked at, there aren't great treatments. Mm. So, or what's happened is you've had the first great treatment and it bought you some years and you've had a second great treatment and it bought you some more years, but you're running out of options. So maybe CAR-T is a good choice at that point, uh, or a, a clinical trial is a good choice at that point, because that's where the cutting edge is. And the people that tend to be involved in clinical trials on the professional side tend to be the people who are researching or are trying to crack the biology of the disease to understand what's driving the cancer. It's sort of a targeted level. So often you're getting you know, very cutting edge new science, plus you're being looked at. I mean, trials are incredibly regulated. So th there's good and bad about this, but you're being watched like a hawk. So it's not unusual when you go into a trial that somebody will come in and they'll get scanned that, you know, more often and they'll find something that was completely unrelated that thank God they mm -hmm. found at the end of this trial because they had a scan that wouldn't have done otherwise. It's just one example. People get watched much more carefully. If there's an adverse event with the drug, they're all over top of it. You have a lot more support going on. Now, there's downsides to that. You know, all this testing and stuff is inconvenient. Um, there can be expenses associated with it if the insurance doesn't cover it. it. You know, it's not fun getting your blood drawn four or five times a week, but they're not going to miss anything. You're getting really, you know, state-of-the-art cutting-edge care. So I'm very big on trials, especially when there isn't a, other great therapies available to you. Um, it's usually the top scientists that are involved in it, and you're getting the absolute latest but still, you got to look into it. You got to talk it with your treatment team. Totally. You got to make yeah. you know, a smart decision. And um, in, not all trials work out. I mean, some trials are horrific. And there's, we'll just spend a second on this. A phase one trial is like where they're saying, is this drug safe? And what's mm. the proper dose? And that's a trial that you got to think a couple times about. Get mm -hmm. to a phase two trial, they said, okay, the drug looks like it's pretty safe, at least in a small number of people. We know what the go forward dose is. And that's kind of a sweet spot for trials, you know, and that's looking at the trial. Sometimes usually there's a comparator arm to standard therapy. And then the third phase is a big trial where they're saying, okay, we've got this. What's the absolute best way to, to give the drug? How long do we give it for? Let's compare it to the best possible other treatment we have for this disease. That's a phase three trial. Those are big trials. But often those are randomized, blinded. So you don't know if you're getting the real drug or if you're getting the new drug or you're getting the old drug. But in the phase two trial, which is kind of a sweet spot, you usually know those are often are not randomized, blinded trials. So you know whether you're getting the good, the new drug, you know, not necessarily the good drug, but the new drug or not. So that's kind of a sweet spot. But it all depends on what your situation is. There's um, you know, tr trials, you know, the trials are for patients, not the other way around. And you've got to think about, you know, um, how to do that, how to enter it, what's, hmm. what's going to be good for you. Would, cool. it, would it be wrong to think that if somebody, if a physician was recommending a patient to go on a phase one trial, would it be wrong to think that, you know, that would be more of a situation of your options are limited at that time. And maybe it's more of a, mm. I don't want to use the word desperation, but like a it's sort like a, of it's last a Hail Mary. Yeah. 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 A, attempt rather than like, is there like a protocol for recommending, you know, phase three trials sort of first and then maybe phase two. And then if, if those options are, are out, then phase one. Well, here's, 
here's the circumstance. Um, there's a lot of things in life you don't get to choose, and timing is one of them. So what can happen is that when you need treatment, you need treatment, and you got to look around and see what's available. And if there's the ideal trial that it's the right time, you know, then you jump into that. But sometimes that ideal trial isn't open, and the only thing that's open is this phase one trial or whatnot. Entering earlier trials does have increased risks. You might not get an adequate dose. The drug may be more toxic than we realize. You know, most drugs never make it to commercial, you know, product. You know, they 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 never get across the finish line. So there are risks with going on that. So I mean, I think you have to have a greater need to consider a, a phase one trial. I've been in a, a number of phase one trials and done really well with them, but I've also entered them later. I wasn't the first patient to enter. I'm right now the very first patient um, in the US on this particular protocol, taking this particular drug for my disease. Um, and it's um, it's not a cellular therapy, but it's an immunotherapy, a lot like CAR-T that we can talk about, it's called the bispecific T-cell engager. And that's kind of, even though that's a phase two trial, that's kind of a riskier trial because I'm the first one and they actually changed the protocol when I was like, Two weeks into it because they said oh we want to do this because there's a safety concern so we're going to adjust this for so i was the Whoa. first person to do it and it's adjusted and you know it all turned out great and i'm doing really well in it but you know there's risks at all stages of trials uh but there's benefits too brian is there wow. is there any um it, because we're just because we're on this topic of, tri of trials and it's 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 uh, quite a fascinating thing to, to talk about because i think it's something that a lot of people are unfamiliar with generally um is there is there ever an is there ever a scenario whether you've encountered it yourself or or people encounter it where you know you you're a part of a maybe you're a part of a phase two trial where there's a not a not a gigantic but not a small um you know po po uh, population of people that are involved in the trial and and somebody's somebody's and and some people are doing very well like some people do very 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 well on it and some people don't and maybe because of the way that in which people for whatever for whatever thousand reasons that trials go sideways, like you said, most drugs don't make it to commercialization or ever make it to market. That that drug doesn't make it to market, and then those and then what is sort of the what are the uh, what are like the ethical implications of somebody who is doing well on a treatment that ends up in the can for any number of reasons? Great question, and a question that is not always answered the same way. So, for example, there's, um, I, I give you an example that's a little bit like that. Um, there's a trial that I know of that's being held right now. It's on a partial clinical hold because there was concerns about the medication. But the people that were doing well, so they're not entering new patients into that trial until they figure it out. But the people who are doing well, and this is defined as responding, and there's very clear definitions, but the FDA is saying, absolutely continue those people on that medication. Mm. Now, sometimes things happen and the company goes under, it goes bankrupt, and that doesn't happen. But generally, if somebody is doing well on a medicine and the company is still around, they continue to do that for a, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. for, they don't often do it forever, you know but they often will try to keep that person on that medication. That's usually the ethical response that should be there. Does it always happen? No, it doesn't always happen. But if somebody's doing well on a med, like I, I have a friend in Australia 
and um, she got CAR T, which is what we're going to talk about later. And they stopped the trial. She's now, I think, three years out in doing great. But they stopped the trial because for commercial reasons, for clinical reasons and whatnot. But she did great with that trial. So there are people who do really well with a trial that drugs, that drug never gets over the finish line, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's um it, it it's a tricky question and it's one that's a problem. I mean, I was um on a panel the other day with the um uh the government uh accountability office you know the kind of overlooks the the um the congress and the fda and stuff like that and and there were these questions about what happens you know a drug will get developed and people will do well on it and some don't do well and the fda says you can't go forward with the drug and then the drug disappears and the people that were doing well are stuck they may get mm. three months of the drug but that's it so it's not always worked out um that there that 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 happens it is an ethical problem what about what about like if the drug does it you know fda goes this is a this is a this is a swell drug it's doing pretty good and you know that's exactly the language they use yeah 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 yeah, yeah. (laughs) well Uh, not well you know right that's right that's right this is this this drug's dandy and uh and you know we want to get this in the hands of people because it seems to be working well is there um i know like i know it probably isn't like this because i feel like this is sort of the the way that you would hope to see it work out, but things rarely ever do uh, follow that trajectory. But like, let's say, let's say, for example, I get on a drug trial, specifically, let's talk about me in the, in the States, right? So I'm on a drug trial for, um, for end stage cystic fibrosis and the drugs looking great. And the FDA is like this drug, we, you know, we want to like, we want to see this on the, in in the market. It's going to do well. It, you know, it seems to be, it seems to be working uh, and then the trial ends. Do I get any kind of like grandfathered in sort of uh, you got, you know, you were a part of the program. You kind of helped us get here. So we're going to just continue to give it to you on some sort of compassionate care. Or is it kind of like, thank you for your services. Good luck. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you, you can get insurance. your hands on it and you got insurance <laughs> or whatever, yada, yada. Like, how does that how does that work? If it's like, you know, it's the drug's good. It works well. And the people that were a part of that process to get it to that point, do they get any kind of recognition that they were a part of that and like you know again it depends that sure. you know it is the, the answer but absolutely um they the, the drug is made available for people who are doing well and can continue on it but generally once the drug is commercially available which is not like the trial ends on tuesday and on wednesday the drug is in <laughs> right. drug store, right. you know i mean there's yeah. usually months and sometimes a year or more you know with a successful trial before that drug is on the market so um usually they keep you going on that and that they sometimes switch these trials and they're just kind of these observational trials that say we're going to follow you like with my car t you know it's a one-time thing but they follow me for 20 years after because it's a a, a gene therapy mm. there's another important question i thought you were going to get to and that is what if you're doing great on this trial and your buddy was randomized to the placebo or did it not, not placebo, but the other standard therapy, let's say, mm-hmm. is doing crappy. Can you allow crossover so that mm. person gets a good drug? The problem when you do that is it completely screws up your statistics, right? Right, right. You're going to look at 
overall survival or progression-free survival in cancer, or if you're going to look at pulmonary function, or you're going to do, and you allow everybody to get the good therapy, you know, whether they get it now or three months or six months down the line, you know, the data is going to start to all come together and merge, and you're not going to have good data. Mm-hmm. That's, that is an ethical question. Wow. Because yeah. You want to get the good data so you can get the drug approved, but you can't do that at the cost of a patient. <clears throat> Somebody should, you, you know, the only way, this is really an important issue to me, and I'm glad, you know, you're giving me an opportunity to talk about this, is the only way you can show a survival advantage to one therapy over another is to let people die on one therapy and stay alive on the other. If you let that person who's going to die switch over to the life-saving therapy, you lose that survival advantage, which gets the drug approved, which gets it into the hands of tens of thousands of people instead of a few hundred in a trial. Wow. So these are real important issues, these crossover issues, and stuff that you know I'm always banging my head against the wall with the FDA and other people you know, to try to get them to understand these issues from a patient's perspective. That's so wild to me. I thought that I had heard before that if in a in a trial that a, a certain population that weren't on the drug weren't doing well, then they would just give it to them. Um, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It seems to me though, wouldn't wouldn't it be a good way to measure the success of that trial is the amount of people that you convert to the actual drug because you're like, hey, look, like we were able to convert this many people to this to the actual drug because it was doing so well. Look at how many people we are yeah. able to move to this, that. This is coming from this a guy who, who's like really looking to like, you know, convert people to subscribing to a podcast yes. or, you yeah. know, a YouTube I, right. channel. I, I, you, you missed your calling though. You should be, <laughs> you know, trial design scientist or something. <laughs> you know, what, the way this stuff is set up is that, you know, you set up the trial in advance. You know, everything is done in advance and you say, these are my primary endpoints is going to be overall survival or progression-free survival or staying out of hospital or staying out of the ICU or staying off a ventilator or not using, you know, not having severe infections or whatever it is. And then maybe there's secondary endpoints. So it's the quality of life, you know, how, you know, how, you know, what else is going on, but you, you post hoc, you may find things like how many people cross. So if you don't put that in at the beginning of the trial, the FDA won't look at it. You know, it, it doesn't count. It can be obvious, but if it wasn't part of your original plan, if it's part of your post-hoc analysis, it's not, it's not good science. You know, you can't change the endpoint. You can't, you know, you know, shoot the arrow and then draw the target around the arrow, you know. Mm-hmm. So that they don't let you do that. And that that's the way the science should be, but you can understand the pitfalls of that. I mean, this is an interesting discussion on on clinical trials because it it is something that's very interesting to me. I mean, I've seen, I was involved in a trial and uh, talking to the FDA about a trial where almost 90% of people converted to the active drug from the standard of care. So in the end, you were comparing the two drugs to each other and there was no difference. So the FDA said, this is a lousy drug, you know? It's like, but that's the way it was set up. The trial was set up to show a survival advantage on one side and it didn't show it. No. So you can understand, I mean, I understand the FDA said, we're just going with the hard science mm. and we didn't set it up to see how many people crossed over. But it is an interesting point that I'm going to take to some of my colleagues. Uh, you know, it takes an outside person to sometimes think of things. Yeah. Call it, call it the um, call it the Mr. Beast 
philosophy. <laughs> so yeah. this is how this works. So I, if you've learned anything from from YouTube, um, you have to look at thumbnails and conversion rates. Oh, sakes, so Mr. Brian. Beast designs a thumbnail to convert his, you know, people who are subscribers who are scrolling through the feed. They see the thumbnail and they're like, should I click on that or not? If in the first three hours that thumbnail is not getting a certain conversion rate, they'll swap out the thumbnail because they know that they need it to work. They're not going to wait until the video dies and go, yeah. oh, well, you know, we probably should have switched that thumbnail. They're going to switch it before the video dies. God bless you, Brian. I mean, <laughs> you know, we I need say. that philosophy because the problem is you set up these trials with, you know, all these good intents of what's the best therapy. Some of these trials are reading out seven, eight years ago. I'm looking at it saying, why the F are they using this drug? I mean, nobody uses that drug anymore because mm -hmm. everybody was using that drug six or seven years ago. But, you know, the trial was designed for the time and you you got to be able to change them faster. Ooh. Ooh. That's what we're, aren't we dealing with that with COVID? I mean, mm -hmm. we're coming up with these vaccines and these pre-exposure prophylaxis antibodies, but the virus moves much quicker than the FDA. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. So we're always behind. The manufacturers can't keep up. I want to I want to ask about I want to get to know what CAR T therapy actually is, but I think a good way for me maybe to understand that is to understand the difference between something like the way that chemotherapy works, the way that immunotherapy works, and then how CAR T sort of fits into that. All right, so let, let me um and let me add one other thing, which is targeted therapy. So chemotherapy generally is taken. I mean, chemotherapy can mean anything that's chemical, but the way the commonly way used is it's anything it kills any rapidly growing cell and cancers by definition are rapidly wildly growing you know bad kids right um so they're 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 growing fast but so it also kills your hair and it also kills your gut and it kills skin cell all kinds of other things that it does so it's it's a blank carpet bombing the area you know very effective for a lot of cancers targeted therapies find a pathway that the cancer is exploited. They crack the biology of the cancer. They find it that the cancer is exploited and addicted to and is upregulated. So the cancer is much more dependent on this pathway than others, or it turns off a particular pathway. Mm. And this will turn it back on again. So targeted therapies have some effect off target, but mostly they target the particular drug. So in the like the blood cancer uh, that I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, it's very dependent on what's called the B cell receptor. It's a B, it's a cancer of a kind of lymph, white blood cell called a B cell lymphocyte. And it gets messages. It has like an antenna that gets messages as to what to do. And it's the cancer has upregulated that and it gets messages all the time saying, you're really important, stay alive, you're you're the best cell ever, and it never dies. God, I wish you, I could talk right? to myself the way that that cancer talks to itself. Holy yeah. shit. It, it upregulates this. If you can break that antenna, if you can, you know, cut the wire between the antenna on the surface of the cell and the mm -hmm. nucleus mm -hmm. that sends the messages, and that's what targeted therapies do. That's like what one targeted therapies do, and there's all kinds of other targeted therapies. What immunotherapy does is harness the body's immune system to attack the cancer. So cancer cells have markers on their surface, and you can say that marker is found more on the cancer cells than on normal cells or only found on the cancer cells. That's the holy grail. If you can find one that's only on the cancer cell, that's not usually the case. There's usually some collateral damage. And the immunotherapy harnesses the body's immune system to attack that. So it can do that by making 
artificial antibodies, cloning antibodies that are all the same that attack the cancer. Those are called monoclonal antibodies. There's something called checkpoint inhibitors and the Nobel Prize was just won for this a couple of years ago where they turn on the immune system. The cancer cells are very good at sending out signals saying, I am not really cancer. I'm really a nice guy. You know, I mean, it's not like they're wearing a big coat that says cancer, you know, get me. So they turn off these signals. There's, there's something called the don't eat me signal, you know, that they can turn off, you know, uh, or turn on. So, so these, there are, treatments that turn on the immune system to do that. The trial that I'm on right now is a bispecific T-cell engager or bite for short, you know, they have all these cute names. <laughs> and what it does is one arm of the antibody attaches to my cancer and the other attaches to a kind of a T-cell, which is a, a cell that's involved in killing cancer. And it brings those two together. And so the T-cell kills off the cancer. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's it's CAR T therapy um, is a cellular immunotherapy. So this um, so let me go through that a little bit. The C stands for chimera. So a chimera is a mixture of animals. So the Greek mythical, you know, where it's a lion's body and has you know I can't remember an eagle's wing and a snake for a tail. You know, it's you know it's it's all. So the reason this is a chimera because it's it's part human, but it's also part this virus that's changed what the ins genetic instructions are and also part, honestly, rodent and other things like that. They've stolen the genetic material from. So that's why it's chimeric. And, um, it, and it's an antigen. It's, a, it's, a, it's an antibody antigen. That's the A in the receptor is on the cell surface. And the T cells are those the T cells are the cellular part of the immune system. So that's what the CAR T stands for. And what it does is what they do uh, with CAR T, which is really cutting edge immune therapy, is that you go through a process called uh, uh, apheresis or leukoapheresis. And um, they put a needle in one arm, they put a needle in the other arm, and they take your cells out of you and they centrifuge them, essentially, a fancy centrifuge with little pores that pulls off your T-cells mm -hmm. and put the blood back in in the other arm. And you sit in this for hours and hours until they get enough of the T-cells off. Hmm. Then they rush those T-cells off to a manufacturing facility. So these are your own T-cells. Now, the problem for some people with cancer is those T-cells might be crappy because they've had a whole bunch of chemo and they've had right. other things that have knocked them out. But generally, they use your own T cells. We can, and and um, uh, that's called autologists because it comes from you, and that's the way most CAR Ts are done. There are some thoughts about doing off-the-shelf CAR Ts where I steal this Brian's, you know, <laughs> T cells because they're better than mine and use his. But the problem is, I usually reject those because my body says those aren't. I'm like your blood boy, except not blood T cells specifically. Right, right. It's really amazing, like the like the way in which the way in which this 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 um, treatment is is entering us into this realm by taking our T cells and basically making them do something that they're not doing on their own. We're just taking them and right. giving them taking them to the shop, giving them an upgrade, putting them back in right. so that they can do this job that we want them to do. 
I mean, this personalized, right. per, like personalized medicine, like to the individual, is a fascinating, fascinating it's, development. It's very, it's very individualized therapy, um, and that there's advantages and disadvantages. And one of the disadvantages is obviously the time involved, the expense involved, the cost is tremendous for this. But they take these cells out, and they exactly what you say. They engineer. It's like a software engineer, and what they generally use is an HIV type virus, a retrovirus, mm -hmm. teaches the T cell to recognize the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna, so let me understand, you can take the cells out of me, you're gonna infect, infect my cells with an HIT virus, you're gonna teach it to kill off cells, and then you're gonna grow them outside of me and put them back in me. Well, that's exactly what they do. <laughs> it's like, it's like they recruit, <laughs> like they take your blood, they pull little men out of your blood. They send uh -huh. them to boot camp, get them ready uh -huh. for the battle, and then put them in on like just send them to the front lines with inside like, your body with like with a better really like sort of PTSD <laughs> at the same time. You know, like they're kind of scarred and kind of yeah. They have this like right, they sickness are. in they're, a way. <laughs> they're sleepy at first and all of that, wow. and they, they're looking now at CRISPR technology, which was sort of a cut and paste technology, mm -hmm. but mostly it's done with viruses right now. Wow. They grow them outside of you, you know, they're checking them and it takes a while to do this. And now they give you some chemo. They give me chemo. Why are they giving me chemo? So I don't reject my own cells because these cells have been genetically modified, uh, right? Uh -huh. So I may not recognize them as normal. So they give me just a touch of chemo. You know, but you know enough to make you feel like crap, but not not like enough where you lose your hair and throw up and all that stuff. Just a little bit to soften me up, so they have an easy landing. They wow. come in, and nothing happens. It's like you know, it's like this is anticlimactic. You know, all of this stuff for coffee and nothing happens. You know, but they go to sleep inside you for a while, and then they start to expand inside the body because they respond, they're serial killers. They respond to the antigen, you know, that being exposed to. The antigen is the protein on the cell surface. And again, it's not always pure. So most CAR, like the CAR T that I have, kills off not only my cancerous B lymphocytes, but my healthy B lymphocytes. And those are what antibodies and stuff like that. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts but when you say that like they go to sleep and they sort of like are prepared and ready to like then wake up and attack is that sort of the same idea of like how to use that for vaccines well in vaccines what you're doing it's, it's a little different in vaccines what you're doing is you're putting in an antigen a protein that the body is going to say I don't like the look of that. I'm going to make some antibodies to attack that. And it looks a lot like the virus. So when the real virus comes along, whether it's COVID or it's the chickenpox virus or whatever it is, 
your body says, oh, I've seen that before. So it doesn't have to learn and go through. It's got blueprints. It's got these memory cells that have stored that so you can get a fast response. Mm -hmm. And that's how the vaccines work. Mm -hmm. So this that's a much more active process. That's where your, your own body is doing that. But the CAR T's, these have been artificially, it's kind of your own body, but it's been like, manufactured outside of you mm-hmm. and now it's coming back in so it's this hybrid that's why it's a, a chimera right it's part you but it's part not you and when it expands it's this serial killer it just kills. it sees a cancer cell it kills it it sees another cancer cell it kills it but there's a lot of collateral damage with right. this right and and that's what and it releases these toxic chemicals enzymes you know the speed up reactions called cytokines in the 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 non-PC term for that is cytokine storm. And we've heard of that with COVID because cytokine storm is what was killing people with COVID. It wasn't just the COVID. It was they got, the body said, oh my God, there's COVID in the lungs. I better attack it. And while it was attacking it, it was turning the lungs into liquid, right? Mm -hmm. It was just destroying the lungs. It wasn't the, and that's why they gave steroids to turn off the inflammation because steroids, you know, given infections, right? Steroids, dampen your immune system but so it's this the same kind of stuff happens with lots of uh processes but it's like in uh with car t it's very common to have this cytokine release syndrome or crs mm-hmm. and it's miserable i mean people die of it uh I, when my wife and i went into this the doctor who was doing this ex- trial for me um came in and said you know, Brian, I'm going to talk to your wife, Patty, rather than you, because you know this stuff, you're a doc. And he said, no matter how bad he looks, no matter what's going on with them, don't let us pull the plug. Don't tell us to pull the plug. We can get him back. Mm. Uh, Because you can get really sick. And we talked with other people who lost their vision, who stopped speaking, who uh, were paralyzed on one side of their body. I didn't have any of this stuff. This is all from the CRS. This is all from the CRS. And another thing that's called, which is these neurological toxicities they got. They have this immune treatment-related neurotoxicities, ICANs that they get. And people can look like, they can seize, they can look like, they can go into comas. Wow. One of the common things is mutism. They just stop talking. Oh, wow. They're just, they just stop talking for days. Huh. And when they wake up, people ask, why did you stop talking? They said, I, I just didn't feel like it. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and just, like, just, for, just for context, like when this is going on, like when people are experiencing the CRS or they're experiencing these, uh, these sort of neurological or, or nervous system-based issues, yeah. Is this, um, is this at, like, at what point does this typically kind of, kind of present itself? If, 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 if people are having this, you know, like, is it, is it, is it after a couple of weeks of the, of the procedure of getting the, getting the, the, the T cells put back into the body or, or is this sort of like kind of a rapid onset thing? Like once those T cells are in the body starts to have a reaction. No, it like I say, there's that sleeping period. So it can start mm. as quickly as a few days later, but classically it's around a week, okay. 10 days, sometimes two weeks. Sometimes it, uh, in my case, I had it twice. I had two episodes of it, one at a week and one at two weeks. And I was in hospital for six and seven days, respectively for it. What were your symptoms? So my symptoms were unusual. I, um, so I, 
I'll share this. So you need a caregiver when you go through this. So I, I was getting muscle aches and pains and I was, you know, kind of not thinking all that straight and I was sweaty and stuff and had a low grade fever. And I had to go to the bathroom and um, number two. Okay. And I'm standing in front of the toilet and I'm trying to sit down and I can't, my legs won't work. I'm in pain. I can't figure out how to sit down on the toilet, hmm. you know? And my wife is saying, honey, you're not acting normal. I'm going to call the nurse and, you know, get this, you know, sorted out. So no, no, it always takes me 20, 30 minutes to sit down on the toilet. <laughs> right. so, I, mean, yeah. so I, I have, I'm completely out of it. I have no idea, you know, how out of it I am, sure. you know, you know, so she, you know, she calls the nurse and next thing I'm on a gurney and being taken to the hospital, you know, and, um, but then my, then I started to swell up. And I was in excruciating pain. I was on opioids oh, wow. around the block. I was, you know, I looked like the Michelin man. You know, oh, my wow. legs were just completely swollen, red, hot to the touch. Um, I was, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't hallucinating, but I was delusional. I was, you know, I, I kind of saw things that weren't really there, but I knew that they weren't really there. Right. I mean, was I was just completely out of it and sorting out how much was the neurotoxicity and the fever and how much was being on high doses of narcotics for the pain control right, right, really right. is really hard to sort out and I don't know what's going on with me because I'm out of it it's my mm -hmm. you know my adult children who are watching me in this shape it's my wife who's doing this I mean I you know I was in pretty difficult circumstances yeah what was happening is they measured how my T cells were expanding my CAR T cells and they massively expanded at this point. I had them everywhere. My knees all swelled up. They put a needle in the fluid in my knees, you know, and they found tons of these T cells in there. And that was, was causing this severe arthritis pain and stuff I was getting in my oh. knees. So then they gave me a bunch of steroids and a drug that blocks one of these cytokines called IL-6 interleutin-6 and my pain and stuff just melted away like within Whoa. an hour or two holy it's kind of back to normal and the thought what you know first thought is why the heck didn't you do this earlier but they want <laughs> at least and now they do but then they didn't know that's the problem sure. with being early in a trial sure. they thought well we got to let the cancer you know because when you give these drugs are we going to turn off the cancer killing of the drugs so you want to walk a tightrope you want to get a little sick but not too sick you know right. i even wrote a post you know i was posting on this saying wish me ill because if you don't get a little sick, you don't get a response. Oh, sure. Right? So, I, so, wow. um, so all the stuff's in the way. And I'll share one other piece. Then I felt way better. And then all of a sudden I was shaking and jittering and anxious and all of this stuff. And my daughter who was there said, you're going through a narcotic withdrawal. And I was because I'd oh. been on opioids around the clock for four days, high doses of opioids. And I, I don't never take anything like this. And suddenly they just stopped because I didn't need it. I was in no pain anymore. So they had oh. to give me some like, like Valium or something, stuff, yeah. a benzodiazepine. So I slept for 12 hours. And when I woke up, you know, all the, the shakes, from, right. you know, going, it doesn't going take long. Work. Is that what the, when, when the doctor said to your wife, um, that like, no matter how bad he gets sort of that, that like turn of phrase, don't, don't pull the pl plug or whatever. Like yeah. I can bring him back. Is that what the doctor meant? Like we know what to do in this situation to be able yes. to get him yeah. out of that yeah. situation. 
and almost no one dies of CAR T. I'm not going to say no one dies of sure. CAR T. Some people get infections and other things like that. But in in my trial, I mean, remember these are very sick people. There were 40 people in my trial, and two passed away from complications related to the CAR T. So I mean, that's that's too many. That's five percent, you know. But that's for disease where almost everybody would be dead if they didn't get treatment. Yeah. And then when I got restaged afterwards, because Mike, this is, I'd failed a bone marrow transplant, which is another type of cellular therapy, you know, because CAR-T is using your cells rather than a chemical. And I'd failed all the treatments pretty much that were available. They found no evidence of cancer down to one in a million cells. They couldn't oh, find hey. cancer in Whoa. my blood, in my bone marrow. All my massive lymph nodes had shrunk. Everything was completely back to normal at one month. Wow. And the massive expansion of the cells is, you know, that misery that I went to drove my cancer to really low levels. Okay. It didn't get rid of it all. It got rid of it to the point we couldn't measure it. It was so, so low. You couldn't find it anywhere in my body. But somewhere at one in 10 billion cells, it was there or something, and it eventually came back. The way CAR-T works is a potentially curative therapy is... You know, uh, I think it was Kennedy who said the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. The cells have to stay around. And if the cells stay around, then they play whack-a-mole with the cancer. So when the cancer pops up again, they just say, oh, you're not supposed to be here. And they just whack it down again. Like good bouncers. A handful of people who've done really well long-term are the people who, if you check them five years out, they still have CAR-T cells. I had CAR T cells for about a year, but then they were gone at 18 months. Okay. There are people seven, eight, nine, 10 years out, would they check and they still have small numbers of CAR T cells that will rise again if the cancer Ooh, pops up. Wow. 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 Now, now there's a there's a um when I when I first when I first read about CAR T therapy, the thing that stood out, it was like it, it kind of it kind of put it up on this pedestal as like wow, this is a, like, could be a revolutionary treatment. And it was like, but currently where we are, there's very, it it was like, there's very few cancers that it's, and, and, and I, and I can't remember, I'm assuming it probably, the context of this was there's few cancers that it's approved for. Um, um, like what, what cancers, where is this like really tried, tested and proven already and like inactive treatment versus, um, versus out there trialing on several other different cancers, which um, obviously is, is what you were participating in. Yeah. So for some of the acute leukemias and kids and young adults, it's, it's a lifesaver with really, really high response rates hmm. for kids run out of options. It's an amazing therapy for those kids. And for some very aggressive lymphomas and other types of uh, blood cancers, it's being used. Um, and with significant success. In my cancer, it's still experimental. In solid tumors, it's still experimental because in a solid tumor, these T cells, modified T cells have to get through the tumor and into the cancer. Mm-hmm. That can be more of a challenge. Um, but um, th- those are the merit. Blood cancers, especially the acute leukemias in kids and um, some of the lymphomas is where it's being used most successfully. It's been used in multiple myeloma with success. So there are a number of approved indications uh, for it, uh, but there is much more potential outside of those approved indications. But it's a toxic therapy for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it's 
an intensive therapy and it's an expensive therapy. So it's, you know, it's, it's not quite ready for prime time in a lot of situations. So it's getting closer and closer. And like all things, it'll, it'll just get better and better. Mm. I, man, I, I do, do you like, do you, can you think of, um, cause it seems like, it seems like this is a treatment that is kind of, uh, you know, could be quite revolutionary already seems like it's, it's sort of being looked at that way. Do you, do you recall the last time we've seen something like this kind of hit the, the scene when it comes to a, a, uh, a treatment for cancer that has, that has shown this much promise in the past? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot of examples I can give you there. So like the first time that we used, um, uh, these, what are called kinase inhibitors, like to treat CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia used to be a fatal disease. Now it's a chronic disease because we figured out mm. a targeted therapy to block what the genetic fusion that happens there. Okay. So that revolutionized the care. The first time we used these monoclonal antibodies that were at that are often added on, you know, one of the best known is rituximab. These revolutionized the care in CLL and in, in in all kinds of cancers, not mm -hmm. just CLL. And they're also used to treat rheumatoid disorders and other things like that because they they so so some of these immune therapy breakthroughs. I would say that the now that the first time that we did the first cellular therapy, bone marrow transplants. I mean, people were dying without bone marrow transplants, you know, mm -hmm. so that, you know, there's, there's been these breakthroughs with bone marrow transplants where we can save a lot of people's life. They have a significant mortality and morbidity associated with them too. And the, the last one, which only happens in the last couple of years is this, these checkpoint inhibitors, which turn back on the immune system that the cancers turned off. Right. And revolutionized the care for things like um, melanomas and uh, certain kinds of lung cancer and stuff like that. So I think the targeted therapy revolution, the immunotherapy revolution and the cellular therapy revolution and CAR T is part of that cellular therapy, immunotherapy revolution. It's also a targeted therapy. It gets confusing the names because it, sure. it checked a lot of boxes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's like, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like just hearing you kind of say that it makes me realize just like how, I mean, I, I'm assuming that we've we've ended up doing this because there's just so many cancers that it's just easier to call it cancer. But like they're 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 all different disease. They're all different diseases, you know. Like they they come under this umbrella. Right. But there's like, which is why you could have a breakthrough in one and not in a, in another. You know that you know a breakthrough in one type of cancer you know might have zero implication, um, or at least yeah, it ha might have zero implication on another. Like you know, Jerry, you have CF. And you have a malfolded protein. I'm yeah. sure there's other diseases that malfold proteins, which results in something else that's not cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. But we're maybe there's there's just maybe not like a hundred thousand of them, so we don't have a, an umbrella term. It for is it. interesting to think of think of the fact that like I, I I think the average person, myself included, grew up thinking like, oh, I can't wait until there's a cure for cancer. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Like, oh, totally. Yeah. The reality is is that the cure for cancer will probably be a cure for a certain type or variant of that. Yeah. I mean, I was reading about, I was reading in, in, in Atiyah's book, he was talking about one of the reasons why when you think about treating a cancer um, based on its genetic makeup and trying to figure out the genetic makeup of cancer and then 
develop a treatment based on that genetic makeup is that it, even if two people have CLL, the genetic makeup of those cancer cells in two different individuals is going to be different. So you right. can't you can't even make a genetic thing for even the same thing in two people, let alone the same thing that everybody who has CLL, for example, has like the, that genetic side of it. It's just, it's so a cancer is so mm. individual to a human. This is the promise Ooh. of AI. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, we say in CLL, if you know one CLL patient, you know, one CLL patient. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. Everybody's different. You know, I did leave out one revolutionary in, um, uh, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee in his book, the emperor of all maladies talked about this. And that was the first combo therapies when we combine therapies. Right. So, you know, and with, uh, that had, uh, synergistic cancer killing properties, but not overlapping toxicity. So patients, so the first chemo cocktails are what cured some of these kids with leukemia and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that was a breakthrough and everybody thought, no, you gave one drug and then you gave another drug and the idea to give all the drugs at once to prevent the cancers here. Oh, I'm going to escape this way. Nope. I got a drug here to block that. I'm giving those both. Well, then I'm going to escape there. I know I got a third drug there to block that mm. in that combo. If you didn't kill the patient, you killed the cancer, you know? Mm. So those combos were also a revolution. So there's been a lot of revolutions in this and there are definitely cancers that are completely curable. Some curable with a scalpel, mm -hmm. you know, um, some curable with um, uh, medications, you know, I mean, that people have a normal life expectancy who are diagnosed with this cancer and it's caught early, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, there are all kinds of curable cancers now, but you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's not going to be one answer. It's like saying, you know, I have a cure for infections. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a, a time that we'll get to that point, but we know that we don't have a thing that you can take for infections. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to, uh, you know, we're kind of up to, to time here, but, um, I, first of all, I just thank you. Thank you for, again, like it's, it's no, it's no, um, it's no surprise that you, you have a master's of, of medical education, uh, because you, you, you do have a really great knack for, for distilling this information in a really digestible way. So we, I, you know, we really appreciate you for that. And, and this is, you know, this is, these are some of, this is an example of some of the, some of our favorite conversations to have on the show. Um, but the, so, the thing that I'm I'm kind of curious about before we wrap is just coming back to the the drug trial um, topic. You know, we've spoken to people on the podcast who have been a part of drug trials, and um, I bet you but have, it, yeah. But yeah, and 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 you know what? Very likely that we've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast where we didn't even realize that they've been on a drug trial. Um, but it's we've we've never really like sunk our teeth into all things drug trials. And, and I guess, I guess um, one thing that I'm curious about, especially from your perspective as someone who is both a physician, but also a patient, uh, it seems like you, you probably have this sort of like inside scoop that many patients probably uh, don't necessarily have. Um, if someone's curious about, someone listening to this is curious about like getting involved in a drug trial, where the fuck do you start? Like, what, what, what is the process of trying to even, even, you know, become remotely familiar with the options that potentially exist out there? Where do you start? Well, the, you know, the obvious answer, but not an easy answer is clinicaltrials.gov. Clinicaltrials.gov lists all the trials. So you go in there, 
and you can put in, you know, whatever you want, cystic fibrosis, um, treatment options, put in where, wherever you live, 50 mile radius, you know, what's going on. If there's a particular drug that you're interested in, you can put that in. Uh, if it's, you know, advanced, uh, you can put all these different terms in and it'll pull up trials for you. But it's not tremendously patient friendly and it can be cumbersome and it can pull up no trials or 78 trials that you got to figure out which one is any good for you because somewhere in the term in the, the language they mentioned cystic fibrosis might even be they mentioned it to exclude it you know but i mean right. you know it you gotta you gotta sort it um most academic centers so for, for people who have a difficult disorder if they're at a teaching hospital an academic center they usually have some clinical trials this used to be more common in the community offices and stuff clinical trials but as medicine has become, and this is a whole other topic, a business, you know, more business and more run by the shirts, you know, and it's about productivity. Trials slow down. It takes a long time to do a trial, you know, to explain to a patient, to walk them through all of that. So trials are done much more at academic centers where they have more support staff and the nurses talking to you. I have a trial nurse who handles all this stuff. My doc mm -hmm. doesn't talk to me. Mm -hmm. you know, for 30 minutes explaining this or that, the trial nurse does that, mm -hmm. right? Well, most community docs aren't going to have a trial nurse sitting there to help you. So an academic center is is a good place. And the other a place, and this is what we're very big at, see off the side is we have these support groups. And a lot of, you know, uh, of our patients have been in clinical trials. And I think, you know, as patient advocates and what you do, you get the best information sometimes from other patients. And they say, Hey, I was in this clinical trial, it worked great for me, or it didn't zippo for me. Mm -hmm. You know, that could be very helpful to a patient. And if you worked in something that worked well, then there's a buzz, you know, you talk to another patient. So those are the things that I'd recommend. Clinicaltrials.gov, an academic center generally is where you have to go, mm -hmm. or support groups or online forums or things like your podcasts and stuff, you know. Try to find someone who's got your disease, who's maybe had it for five years or 10 years longer than you have, you know, who can give you some tips on how to mm. jump into that and what's good and what's not so good about it. That's really and, funny because I yeah. was going to make the joke that you find them at drugtrials.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, but you kind of do. I mean, yeah. was, I mean it's yeah. not drugtrials.com. Yeah. Pretty but, close. Clinicaltrials.com. Yeah, but yeah, because the, the thing that's going to be there is you're going to also find trials on yoga and on, you know, um, you know, because I mean, we're we're sponsoring uh, stuff on um, alternative integrative oncology, you know, I mean, on, you know, does yoga, I mean, yoga or diet or exercise or meditation or sleep or, you know, make a difference, you know, mm. so you're going to find everything there, um, you know, um, you know. Psychotherapy, all that stuff will be found there at clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So it's not just drugs, but um, you know, I don't know. And those those other therapies are really important too for patients. Yeah, I'm going to make an AI bot tonight that finds uh, clinical trials for you. Hey, I, actually, really to be honest with you, Brian, that. I just did a quick like Google search, like uh, clinical trials near me, Canada, and uh, there, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like there's uh, there's anything kind of similar to what, what you have down in the States, uh, um, government trials. No, clinicaltrials.gov includes Canada. Oh, does it? Okay, okay. And so it's so... international includes all over the world. Oh, okay, cool. Any, okay, sweet. Yeah. We can, uh, we can yeah, put it. You a... can pull in Canada. 
But you're absolutely right. As in, as a as a dual citizen in Canadian, there are less clinical trials in Canada for mm. a lot of reasons. Mm. Not just that it's a smaller country, but a lot of other reasons. There's just less clinical trials than there are less access in the U.S. And trials are starting to move um, out of the country because it's much cheaper to do a trial in other countries than it is to do in the U.S. because of the regulatory demands here. Mm. Is it possible to get, I, I remember a, a, a close friend of ours who had cancer went to the United States to do immuno, an, a, an immunotherapy trial. Mm -hmm. um, is it possible for patients in Canada who are non not responsive to treatments here and there are sort of no other options to be covered to go and take part in a new trial? Um, Brandon, so States, was, Brandon was covered. Yeah. So the answer is yes, but it's not easy. There's two ways to do it. The National Institutes of Health offer free everything. They, they used to even pay for your airfare from Canada to go down to Bethesda and get treatment. They pay, give you money towards the hotel room. They cover all your medical consults, your scans, your drugs, everything. They cover everything. And it's open to everyone internationally. Now they now what you have to do, let's say if you're in Toronto, you have to drive to Buffalo and then they'll fly you from Buffalo to there. Mm -hmm. You know, no longer fly you from internationally, but you know, so so the NIH is a really good option for people in Canada specifically. The other is if the Canadian if there is not an option in Canada, but there is a treatment available in the US, depending on which province you're in and what's going on. And there's, you know, in Canada we have what's called the 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 post the postal code lottery right i mean if you're in the wrong postal code you may not get the treatments you want mm. some of it has to do with that and sometimes patients who run out of their options but there's something available in canada can get the canadian government to pay for that or not their provincial government because it's a provincial concern in in canada but it's not easy it's not like this oh sure we'll write you a check for two million dollars for your therapy <laughs> right. yeah no they're, yeah. they're not it's not a quick uh fix Mm -hmm. So I do know that my um, I do know a number of Canadians that come to the U.S. to get therapy who can afford it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but not everybody can. Most people yeah. can. Well, I Brian, I got to say you're you're one of our uh, you're one of our favorite guests. It's always a pleasure oh, to have you. you on. There's the door is always open for you to come on the show. Uh, we just love being able to pick your brain and and inquire and and. Uh, and just you know, flourish our curiosity uh, uh, upon you and 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 your wealth of knowledge. So it's it's great to get the the perspective of both not only the physician but also the patient. And uh, this has been this has been a, a really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for for uh, for being being with us. It was a real treat. Oh, thank you. I love being with you guys. You guys are so much fun. It's always I, I think I told you before. It's my most fun interview. You know, I do stuff with the big news agencies and things like that. And it's so dry. And, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you guys, it's fun. And the, the language is colorful. You know, it's 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 great. Yeah, really we'll good. keep you. We'll keep you young. We'll keep you young. All right. <laughs> I need. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Lessons for the holidays. Take care. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. 
And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.